When my father surveyed the destruction of Nazi Germany in 1946 as part of the Allied Army of Occupation, he shared the belief held by the victors that they had defeated a formidable military machine and liberated a population who had been living under a totalitarian dictatorship since Adolf Hitler's accession to power in 1933. During the war, Churchill, Roosevelt, and even Stalin— who had later transpired had murdered even more of his own people than had Hitler, joined with religious leaders in describing the Second World War in apocalyptic terms, as being a battle between the forces of light and darkness, a struggle between good and evil for the soul of the civilized world. But this was considered merely religious and political rhetoric. At that time, Conventional historians attributed the rise of Nazism exclusively to socio-economic factors, and that remained the accepted view for the next twenty years. Hitler had appeared at a time of national crisis to haul a demoralized Germany off its knees following the inglorious defeat of the First World War and restore its national pride. He brought it through a decade of political instability and ruinous inflation by ruthlessly eliminating the opposition and borrowing far beyond his country's means. Hitler has been called a shrewd political strategist, but in truth he simply did as he wished and damned the consequences. In crude terms he was spoiling for a fight. His inner demons demanded constant stress, adoration, and attention like a spoilt child. Once in power, he refused to pay the punitive reparations imposed on Germany by the victors, and he rebuilt his armed forces in defiance of the Versailles Treaty, which was intended to limit German rearmament. Then he marched into the occupied Rhineland, annexed Austria, and snatched back the Sudetenland, half hoping for a reaction from an outraged international community, again the action of a petulant bully. But this only earned him the admiration of his people, and the grudging respect of other world leaders who would like to have been equally self-assertive. It was not only the fascist leaderships in Spain and Italy who openly admired Germany's ability to get its own house in order, but many European aristocrats who shared Hitler's suspicion of the Jews, whom they regarded as having far too much control of the financial infrastructure— and despite their initial dislike of the petty bourgeois Austrian corporal, German industrialists also came to embrace the new order, grateful for the revitalization of the German economy, particularly the armaments industry, on which many had built their fortunes and family names. By the time Germany hosted the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936, the nation was regarded as a model of reconstruction and regeneration and was looked upon with envy by Britain and America, as well as by its longtime enemy France, all of whom expressed their regard for the German qualities of resourcefulness, industry, and organization. As for the Nazis' persecution and disenfranchising of the Jews, made legal by the iniquitous Nuremberg Laws, this was excused as being the excessive zeal of a regime which would come into line with its neighbors in due course. The worst their critics would say was that the Nazis were political opportunists and street brawlers whose strutting leaders affected cultural pretensions which they never possessed 
inviting comparison with America's gangsters. But no one seriously believed that there was anything more sinister at work behind the scenes than rabid nationalism, not until the full extent of Nazi atrocities were revealed to the world at the Nuremberg trials. Disbelief at the scale of the wholesale murder of millions and the clinical efficiency with which it had been perpetrated led even the most dispassionate observers to describe the Nazis as evil and Hitler's power over his people as messianic.